You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Uh-oh, guess what day it is. Guess what day it is. Huh? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. What day is it, Mike? <laughs> Welcome to Earth Station One, a weekly podcast dedicated to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and much, much more. Sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Earth Station One Podcast. That's right, folks, we're back. And this time for the LGBT segment, which is usually hosted by Darren, who is out with a stomach flu tonight, is being replaced by Mary. That's right, Mary is bringing us this week's topic, and this one is a goodie. It is going back down to the Whistle Stop Cafe, and we are going to be talking about course fried green tomatoes by fanny flag it's pretty awesome and it was a great book and even better movie in some ways and it's gonna be fun to talk all about it and this man who has never had a fried green tomato in his life let's say hey to mr mike gordon howdy you and fried green tomatoes i don't see it I really yeah, don't see I, it. I was confused. I didn't know if this was part of our LGBT programming or if it was one of the great episodes or I, I just, I got confused. I wasn't really sure. So It's both. It's both. It's two <laughs> treats in one. <laughs> but regardless, uh, yes, it's actually, as you mentioned, very popular movie. And uh, which, of course, you know, despite the fact that it's uh, been around for a long time, uh, we will probably spoil it for a lot of people. So oh, very much so. If they and haven't seen it, uh, go ahead and do so. Please do. It's well worth seeing. And, you know, if this is your first time listening to us, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We met a, quite a few people up at the South Carolina Comic Con over the weekend and gave out quite a few ESO postcards and or Station One postcards. And, you know, we highly pumped up the show and we got a lot of people interested. So hopefully one or two of you are new, at least, who are listening this week. And if not, you know, please tell your friends, tell your neighbors. We do always love hearing new people saying, hey, I loved your show. Listen for the first time. Or if you're a longtime listener, hey, I uh, love it when you people join us and we've been listening forever. And so whoever you are, thank you for listening. We do appreciate you guys. Also, a big shout out to our patrons. Patrons, we could not do this without you. We always love giving you guys new material. We always love giving you new content. And we love that you guys support us. It's a win-win situation for everybody. And yes, you too can join the ESO patron just for a dollar a month to start. It's not too shabby. It's four quarters a month. And you know what? That's not too, too bad. And, you know, we, all you could do is go to patreon.com slash ESO Network and you too can help support the ESO Network. Of course, also, let's say hi to our friends over at Tifosi Optical. It was a bright, sunny weekend this time down in Georgia and into South Carolina. It was a little chilly at times, but it was sunny and bright. And guess what, folks? You know what? I had my Tifosi sunglasses with me and I was, you know, strolling through the sun and enjoying life. It was pretty awesome. And you too can do it by going to TifosiOptics.com. And you know what? TifosiOptics.com is saying thank you by way of giving you a 10% discount. That's right. Not just the discount on one pair of sunglasses, on your whole order. That's pretty awesome. 10% off your whole order. All you have to do is go to TifosiOptics.com and put in the code. 
Earth Station One. I don't know where I've heard that before, but Earth Station One is your coupon code, folks. And you know what? 10% off your whole order is not a bad thing. Take it from us to Fuzzy Optics. And now you are here with new friend of the show, author Jennifer Vaughn. Welcome to Earth Station One. Hi, Mike and Mike. It's so great to be with you. Thank you so much. It is great to have you here on the station. Um, for those people who may not be familiar with your work, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do. So I, I have parallel worlds somewhat. Um, my day job keeps me quite busy. I'm a TV news anchor in New Hampshire with all of uh, all of that that you can imagine wrapped into one job. And then my other job is I like to write books. So I just released my sixth book. And this one is a narrative nonfiction, as was my fifth. But I also write fiction. And um, I'm a busy mom. My kids are grown now. They're both in college. Um, I have a little dog. I'm very happy here in New Hampshire. <laughs> and my days are pretty full. Um, I would say I divide the day pretty well by um, dealing with my TV news job during the hours of the evening, getting some writing done in the morning. And that's pretty much how it's been for me now. I've been up here doing the TV job for 23 years. Wow. Writing started a little bit later than that, but I've, I've now got six books under my belt with a couple more that live in my computer for now. Um, and, and I have to tell you, I have, life is good. Life is good here. What, um, what, I'm very familiar with that area. I used to live, uh, I grew up um, in Massachusetts, but on the New Hampshire border uh, sure. in a little, a little town called Winchenden. Uh, which yes. is pretty close to Queen, uh, Keene. Um, where, where in New Hampshire are you at? So I'm just slightly north of Manchester. My TV okay. station is based in Manchester. And I am someone who can never complain about traffic on the way to work. It <laughs> yeah, takes me 10 minutes along back roads. And there's absolutely nothing that really ever gets in my way. On a snowy, stormy day when I have to be, be in early or stay late, um, I might have to extend that to a 20 minute drive to work, but other than that, um, very, very, very easy maneuvering around here. And we've got the ocean to our East. We've got the mountains to our West and North, as you know, Mike, um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful area to live. Absolutely. Absolutely. Living especially the once living the life. Yeah. Especially in the fall, man, there's, there's nothing oh, like a new England autumn, right? Nothing better. Nothing better. Truly. I mean, even even if you just walked out on your back deck on a morning in October and you snapped a picture of the sky, um, it <laughs> and then you'll, you'll you'll take a moment to just say, "My gosh, is this beautiful or what?" Yeah, and then winter comes and you're like, "Oh yeah, ouch." And why do I live here again? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, let's go back a little bit. Um, so you mentioned that uh, you know your news anchor journalism, right? Um, as far as and and of course your writing as well. Both are really. Um, very story-oriented, I would imagine. When did you, when were you sort of first attracted to telling stories? Right away. I grew up reading everything I could get my hands on, um, and that includes whatever dirty novel my mom had on her side of the bed at night that I would grab by the time I was eight, nine, and ten and just start devouring things. Um, very early on, I noticed that I thought more in images, and when I read books, I could see them in my head. They, the characters came to life and the textures of the, the words. So there was an, an enormous fascination with how words are linked to visuals for me. And then when I got into college and I started to sort of experiment with a couple of different majors, I ended up with an English degree, but I had a, a strong fascination with television. And that goes back to just you know being a kid and watching the evening news with my mom and dad back in the day and 
being very fascinated by how these men and women could memorize every word that they were saying for a half hour at a time. Then, of course, as I grew up a little bit and I said, okay, well, that's not real. They're not really memorizing all those words. There's something called a teleprompter involved and that helps them out a little bit. But I loved the idea of sharing someone else's story, not always mine. You know, certainly you step out of the interest in, you know, yourself if you want to get into journalism and in TV because everything you do every day is about somebody else. So there was a lot of fascination in that. So that led me to TV. And um, I, you know, I, I did my grunt time. It is the kind of industry in which you've got to start at the bottom and, you know, learn every aspect of it. So I learned how to shoot my own video. I learned how to edit my own video. I learned how to be a reporter on the scene. And I also learned how to be an anchor at the desk. And there was so much value built into that, but alas, it's all images, you know, and it's tying words to images and then because I was, lo- I, I loved reading so much and I had been such a strong reader my whole entire life, I thought at some point once I had built some life experience, which through TV and living inevitably happens. So I wanted to give that a go-to. Um, so I built in a lot of what I see every day in my news business and I could craft some pretty interesting stories that way. And before long, I had a couple books and then after that I had a couple more. And then the last two books were different in that they were somebody else's story entirely. So I wasn't just plucking stuff out of my imagination. I was retelling somebody's life story. And in that, there is a lot of, um, it's it's a different approach. You're still writing a book and you're still, you know, I still see it visually, but you have to be very careful and you have to take that, you have to be very respectful of how you craft these books, which are basically another person's whole life. And they're giving it to you in a basket, right? And then trusting you to do with it as they would want you to. And there's a there's a lot of pressure in that, but yet there's a lot of joy. And when you have a final product and, you know, both of the gentlemen that my last two narrative nonfictions are about, you know, we, we have a, a joint project that we're all really proud of. So that in a nutshell is, is how one career kind of lent itself mm-hmm. into um, the growth of another. Gotcha. Actually, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I do know uh, a number of uh, journalists that have gone into uh, telling uh, fiction stories as well. And, and uh, a lot of it is, I found that a lot of that writing is more uh, grounded uh, because yeah. of their, um, you know, journalistic backgrounds. So I 100% agree with that. Um, I think that in order to understand the depths of emotion, and if you're if you're crafting dialogue in particular, and you can relate back to that moment that you, in my case, the moment I interviewed somebody who had just p- perhaps felt something like what I was trying to bring forth with my words and that scene and that dialogue between those two characters. And I could remember sitting in a room with somebody be interviewing them about, you know, a horrific event or something grand, both apply. And I could remember what they looked like. I could remember their expressions on their faces. I can remember how their voice would change. So all of that was extremely helpful and applicable to developing your writing. I, um, and I want to talk more about that too, but just on the, on the sense of, uh, you know, your, your news anchor career i would imagine like for most of us you know despite, whether it's the uh, good news or bad news uh sometimes we get too much news 
and and you're right there on the front lines of it. How how difficult is it to sort of sort of not get caught up in it? Oh, it's it's impossible not to get caught up. But the the real important part is about stepping out of it. It's it's inevitable. It's going to cut you off at the knees at times because what we what we bring to our audience every night is probably about eighty seven percent horrific. And the rest will, you know, try to fluff it up a little bit with something good that, you know, a community event just happened, or, you know, here's a, a picture of a pretty bird who was found on the, you know, out, out of its environment. We got a picture of it on the seacoast or something like that. Um, but I, I will tell you that the news industry has a way of embedding itself in you to the point where, you know, some days are harder than others, but you notice, you notice a difference in yourself and you, ha- you have to be mindful of that because it can carry over into when you come home to your family, it, oh, can, yeah. it can carry over into how you, uh, how you behave in the world. You know, it can filter your natural happiness because basically what we do is we tell you every worst case scenario that can happen in a person's life. Um, it can happen on the drive to work. It can happen in your home. It can happen. It can happen anywhere. And what we show you every night proves that. So um, I, as I've matured in the industry and um, especially as I, as I was raising a family, I always had to make sure that when I came back home after a particularly tough day or any day in which bad news dominated my entire time at work, I left it there. But you're right. You have to be very, you have to be mindful and decisive about making sure that when you're done with work, you've left it there because it can creep into every part of your life. Yeah. I would imagine like most of us, like I said, we can, we can turn it off occasionally. Right. But that's your, I mean, you're right there. <laughs> it must be really difficult. So thank you for that. Thank you. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about made in Hollywood. Let's talk about the newest book with Scotty Morrow story. How, how did you get involved and want to tell his story? Interestingly enough, my fifth book led to my sixth book Um, when I was when I was writing my fifth book. And that was a 2019 release called Shadow Kid. This was my first narrative nonfiction. And this was a gentleman who came to me out of familiarity. You have a couple of mutual friends, but he's a New Hampshire guy. Trusts me, watches me every night, says, hey, I know you write books. Would you be interested in perhaps recounting my life story? And a couple of things on that. In the news business, that happens all the time. I mean, we're constantly pitched for ideas. And a lot of these ideas are somebody's invention or somebody's life story or somebody's, you know, momentous event in their lives. And that's all well and dandy. And a lot of the a lot of the time we can follow up and make something with that, right? And it works. But a lot of the time it might not be a fit or it might not be the story that, you know, deserves an hour of local coverage or whatever. So I said, absolutely. You know, if you thought enough of me to reach out, then I would love to talk to you. So we spent about four or five hours together at the same table I'm at right now talking to you guys. And um, he provided bits and pieces of evidence, hard evidence, photographic evidence of things that he was telling me about this wild and crazy life. And it convinced me on the spot that I had to do the book. So after that came out and we became very good friends, I adore him. He said, I have another friend. And he's also interested in recounting his life story to the to the right author, because the difference between the two, they both have Hollywood connections. But Scott Morrow, as he's known now, is still he still lives there. He's fully immersed. He knows a ton of people, but he wanted somebody outside of the industry. So outside of the Hollywood biz. So um, much like 
with the gentleman um, involved with Shadow Kid, we spent a lot of time just sort of, you know, getting to know one another and um, what my writing style is and what he would expect and how we would put this together. And I, it, this was another instance in which I really jumped at the, at the chance because this is another wild and crazy life. It is a unique trajectory, unlike anybody that I've ever known. And this young boy was not a tragic ending. Uh, he was, he did not become a drug addict or alcoholic and have to go to rehab and lost all of his money. And he wasn't taken advantage of by awful people. And he's still a very successful, happy, well-adjusted man. And that was another real interesting part of getting into this project with him was understanding, okay, how did this child actor navigate this business being basically managed by his mom at the time through the 50s and the 60s. And not only was he an enormously successful child actor, but so was his older brother. And they were together in some of the biggest Hollywood productions of that era, working alongside the most enormous stars you can imagine. Um, he was very good friends with Marilyn Monroe, all from a child's perspective. So once I had all of those elements to work with, and he and his mom were prolific journal writers. So they would they would remember um, an event almost in real time because they were jotting it down in these journals and remembering you know who was on the set that day and what it looked like and what what the scene felt like and what Scotty was experiencing as a seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 year old, what his mom was experiencing trying to manage both boys. So once I had all of those pieces in place, I said, let, I mean, let's, we've, we've got to do this. Let's go for it. So we would go chapter by chapter and uh, much like shadow kid, but in a different way, Scott would provide all the, the, um, the photography too, from the day and his private collection of pictures was wild. Um, so we would, we would go chapter by chapter, making sure that I was on track as, especially, especially as I rebuilt dialogue. That's a big part of what makes these, these books work and what makes them click with writers um, and, and the audience too, for that matter, is the, the recreation of dialogue between two people that happened four decades ago, you know, three decades ago um, and getting that right. So we relied heavily on the journals that he and his mom had written through their experiences on television sets and on movie sets. And we would, we would make sure that we were as close to what he remembered it being like as we could possibly get. Now, um, obviously you've mentioned Marilyn Monroe, who's probably one of the most iconic figures of pop culture, maybe ever. Right. right. Um, oh, so obviously, sure. so yeah, there's a, there's an instant, there's a, there's a, there's a talking point. There's a grab right there. Right. As far <laughs> yeah. as, as far as why should anybody read this story? Why should anybody care? Right. But, but how did you find Scott's story either atypical or typical of what, we view as the Hollywood kid experience? So probably typical in all of the most obvious ways. Um, the sets were grand and dramatic and everything that you can associate from what you've seen in the movies about the movies. Um, but being on a TV set, the, the process of landing a role, the audition and the intensity of auditions so then juxtapose that with a little boy who had a normal-ish family 
went to normal public schools when he could, but yet would go to school sometimes on studio lots just to make sure that he kept up with the curriculum. So it was, it was that that was fascinating to me, how he could grow up and really tell you that he lived like a normal kid, but yet unlike every other normal kid you can imagine, because he was thrust into this industry and with all of the big players and all of the big shows, what is atypical from every other, I was a child actor story is again, the the trajectory that he stayed upon to have a successful and well-adjusted life. And that was, that doesn't come easy because the easier part of being a child actor is to fall directly into those pitfalls that we all hear about. That's the easy way because all of the temptation is there. All of the connections are there. Um, you know, you're granted entrance into this world that you have no idea how to handle. You're, you're too young. You don't have the skills yet. So that's the difference between his story, which was every bit as glamorous as every other child actor you can imagine. I mean, this kid was in Peyton Place, biggest movie of 1957 and beyond. The, 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 the scandal, you know, the sex-driven drama um, of that kind of movie. And yet he emerged from that unscathed as any other 10-year-old might be. He, you know, um, that, that was another attractive aspect of this is there were no bad endings. Now, certainly with that said, there are life instances and there has been great loss that this man has endured um, losses that reshaped the whole future, his whole future, but yet nothing, he never imploded. You know, there was no self-induced personal implosion that you would be so used to hearing about. And a lot, unfortunately, a lot too many of these child actor stories. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would imagine. Okay. So since, you know, Hollywood's still there, still doing its thing. And some would argue it's more powerful than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, still a lot of uh, children involved, but I would imagine that this, what, what happened with Scott and, and his story that, that captured a time period that no longer exists, right? That, that system no longer exists. It's very different. So this is, this is an also a very, I think, important like time capsule right? That his story is being told in this way. In many ways. Um, in, in, in so many ways, you, you have it, you, you nailed it. But in other ways, what's new is old and what's old is new. And, you know, the, the stories as old as time prevail. So think about cutthroat. Okay. Yes. Then yes. Now. So that's mm. the same. Think about competition. Yes. But then there were fewer options, right? There were fewer mechanisms to get talent out before an audience. So the, co- the competition factor was still real and it was still intense, but it wasn't. And there were fewer opportunities back then. You know, there, there wasn't streaming service. There was no Netflix. There was no Apple TV. So competition was as intense as you can ever imagine. Now, think of, think of life as we know it now, like what drives crisis, right? Drama and, and, some, and, and sometimes self-induced drama, competition, jealousy, money, fame. So all of those elements that still drive us as consumers drove them as consumers back then. It, the difference being all of the drama and all of you know the, 
the ego and all of the problems that we still deal with now. But back then, you didn't know about it as the consumer because you only knew that the movie came out and you know that you loved the actor actor and the actresses attached. But nowadays, it's like you, social media is, is so intense and all-consuming that you know so much about that person. You know what they look like when they step out of the Walmart. And you know what they look like when they're, you know, going to grab a Starbucks without all of their makeup on. So back then, there was still this shroud of glamour that we don't have now. Um, but I'm telling you, all, all of the elements that drive life and interest and crafting movies and TV shows remain the same throughout. The themes have not changed. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, I definitely look forward to uh, checking this book out. It sounds like it's a real uh, unique perspective uh, of a time that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a big Hollywood guy. I'm a big uh, film fan from this time, the forties, anything, any time like that. So, and this is a very unique story, I think, uh, or told at least from a unique angle. Um, and I appreciate yeah. that. Um well, now that we found out where, uh, you know, what, what projects you're working on or uh, this book in particular, um, let's find out what you're passionate about. Mike, I think she's ready for, for the geek seat. <laughs> I think ready so or not, too. here it comes. <laughs> He's a hard-nosed reporter, so I think, you know, she's... she's she, yes, gonna, she is, yes. Oh, yeah. She's going to chew us up and spit us out. <laughs> yeah, really. And go, come on, kid. What else do you uh, got? You know? No, hardly. I'm ready for you, though. Okay. Awesome, Jen. All right. You ready for your first question in yep. the geek seat? You know, Jen, we want to know, what was your favorite geek out moment? Okay. Hmm. So remember, I've, I've interviewed presidents. I've interviewed wannabe presidents. I've been to true, Super Bowls. True, New Hampshire. You guys get it first before everybody else does. Yeah, the world descends on New Hampshire every four years. Oh, every four years. Now, that is an entirely different podcast that we should get to. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so this, this was a really funny moment. And it, it, it all right, so it involves, it involves writing books and it involves Hollywood. And it was sort of like the, the two thrown together for me at the same time. So when my debut novel came out, Last Flight Out, I was very lucky to get an invite um, from the organizers over at the, the, the Daytime Emmy Awards in Beverly Hills. And they said, listen, um, you're you know, a local author, you're a TV news anchor. How about if you bring your book out to the awards show and you include your book in the swag bag that goes out to all of the celebrities who come through and prior to the ceremony, they have you know, two full days and they come through, they hang out with you and they, and we try to invite unique product owners, crafters to share their stuff with the celebrities as they come through. So I said, oh, that sounds fantastic. I'd love to hand my book off to all of the celebrities who will be attending the daytime Emmy Awards. I'm in. So that in of itself was a blast. I had a blast. I brought my mom at the time. I brought my daughter at the time who was a lot younger back then. And out we go. And it's, it's so much fun. And so we spend two days doing that. So as we're going out to have lunch one day at the, at the hotel, and this is, you know, the Beverly Hilton. So it's a lovely place. So we're out by the pool and we're having some Caesar salad and we're just sitting around there and, you know, people are walking back and forth, coming and going, because this is where a lot of the celebrities are also staying. It's where the, the show was going to be. 
So, you know, we're, we're people watching and my mom at the time says, that's Ozzy Osbourne. And my daughter and I look at each other and we're like, how do, how do you even, how do you even know that? <laughs> sure enough, making his way in all black with, you know, that sort of lumbered over gait and his long hair was Ozzy Osbourne. So uh, I didn't, I didn't even talk to him. I met his wife, Sharon was there and I had a lovely conversation with Sharon, but that moment of my mom spying Ozzy Osbourne as I'm having lunch with my mom and my daughter and we're digging into these crisp Caesar salads that probably cost me three times what I would pay for them back in New Hampshire, looking up and happening to, happening to see Ozzy Osbourne go walking by. And even though I didn't have a moment with him, it was a moment unto itself. And I still look back upon that, that day. And that's one of my absolute favorite memories of anything related to stuff I've done with my books. That is awesome though. You know, that's like one of yeah. those, how the heck does mom even know who Ozzy Osbourne is? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What was your most disappointing geek out moment though? Oh goodness. This probably pivots back to my TV world. Um, yeah. So going, going to the Super Bowl and having the chance to interview the athletes that that's also one of the, the best moments because some of them are so fun and one of the worst moments because you know, a lot of them are just over it and they want nothing to do with you at the time or they're tired or they've done one too many interviews. So it was probably, you know, my, my husband is a former college football player. Both of my kids are college athletes, athletics and sports is a big thing. Right. So I was probably really excited to talk to a couple of them and, you know, I got a less than, less than desirable or less than interesting, um, no effort involved comment back, not with all of them, but a couple of the really big time famous athletes were a bit of a disappointment to me because otherwise it's a real fun atmosphere and, and they really, they really should embrace it as much as the media does work with the media, you know, make it silly, make it fun, um, engage the viewers. So there were, there were a couple of big time, think biggest of all time athletes that I was like, eh, that could that could have gone better. Mm. totally understand that completely completely understand that what geeks you out the most oh let's see this is probably i sound i sound like a mom but when my kids achieve the highest level of success that they've been working so hard for when you become you know it's like when you become a parent it just it's like your world diverges, right? And all of the stuff that you've accomplished on a personal level is is great and all that. But when you see your kid have a really good moment, oh, that's that's a whole nother level of just internal joy. Well, of course, because you feel you feel the pleasure for them and yeah. to see how happy your child is. No, I totally get that. Totally get that. And everything, then you know you you're glowing inside or floating above the ground. My kid did it. It's awesome. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then even no matter what, you know, no matter what TV brings, and there have been so many great things that I've been able to accomplish courtesy of my TV career. And yet, 
you know, equal with my book writing career and all the wonderful people that I've met in between. But I will tell you, I also geek out sometimes on the regular old, you know, you, you know, nobody, you're not famous. Um, nobody knows your name, but yet you shared a story with me or, you know, we shot some video together and I put a story together and it featured you. It featured the guy that nobody would ever know if I didn't do a story with, and somebody trusted me with their, their whole, you know, magical moment in their life or, or conversely their worst moment in their life. And those are actually the, the most memorable moments of my career. Um, TV speaking, the, the average Joe who will spend time with me, share something um, of critical importance in their lives that either occurred to them or they were responsible for, um, trusting me with their with their story, with their time. I remember those stories the most. Those those touch me the deepest. No, totally understand that completely. Awesome. Completely understand. That's fantastic. What turns your geek off though? Oh, I, I have a, I have a real big problem with folks who are too big for their britches. Um, I understand feeling proud of your accomplishments in life and having a certain aura about you, but if you treat somebody poorly, or if you hurt an animal, a baby or an old person, oh, I, that's, that's geeking out in all the bad ways. No, completely respect that completely. And, you know, I'm sure you, that ties probably into your Super Bowl story in some ways a little bit. <laughs> she's like, maybe. Maybe, but she's not naming names or events such which Super Bowl it was or whatever. It's okay. I will tell you, though, you know, it, it's, it's like for the general watching public, you check into the Super Bowl Sunday. Sunday at 5, you might turn the TV on and, like, catch the pregame action. And then you're in it for the game and then you shut it off. Oh, you, I mean, you've, you've got to give some credit to the media because we live Super Bowl coverage for the entire week before the game even kicks off. Um, when I, when I, when you cover a Super Bowl, I kid you not, you go out oh, 10 days early because usually the Monday or the Tuesday leading up to the big game is what they call media day. And that's when they, they allow the media access to all the players and you're pretty close to them and you can do some silly things with them. And usually, which brings me back to the ones who won't do silly things with you or just kind of lame or standoffish or whatever, had a bad day. Um, but the, I mean, we're, we're on TV. Sometimes there's a time difference involved with what you're reporting on back home. So you're working mornings, you're compiling news for your early shows, and then you're compiling different stories for your late shows, covering a Super Bowl for the media is grueling, grueling. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure it is. And I had a friend of mine who was in radio years ago and he, you know, with part of radio row and they trying to get mm -hmm. the interviews and they, he gave, he pretty much told me the same thing that you just yeah. said. And so totally understand that. So funny story about when I was at the Super Bowl. Um, speaking of radio row, that was one of my, my reports, um, spent some time on radio row, talked to a lot of the, uh, the guys and the gals who were doing their shows for back home. And as I'm making my way, interviewing them, interviewing the radio hosts for my TV stuff that would, they would air later that day. I ran into Joe Theismann. That's another fun part about Super Bowl week when you're covering it, they're coming and going. I mean, they're flying by you, you know, it's like you're like pluck 
the biggest football star you can imagine and like throw him into, you know, just the guy that's standing over there by the door, or this guy that's being interviewed by that radio host over there. And they're walking by your TV cameras at all times. So Joe Theismann is a really good guy. So I, I said, Hey, listen, would you be up for something silly and fun? He's like, yeah, what you got? So I said, how about if, you know, we shoot something and I pretend to walk off with one of your rings, I'll put the ring on and then I'll pretend to walk off and you have to come chase me. I was like, it's, it's goofy, but it, I think it would be really funny for all the viewers back home. He's like, totally, let's do it. And he was game for everything. And it was, it's, that's another one of my favorite Super Bowl moments too, was like trying to, you know, pretend I was walking off with one of his rings on my finger. So that was really cool. And he's, he was a super fun guy too. Very easy going. That's awesome. I've heard great things about Joe. Yeah. You know, I'm a DC person, so you know he was <laughs> part of my history. So know Joe really well, and we'll never forget that Monday night. That's all we have to say about that. All we have to say about that. Yes. What fictional character would you like to meet the most? Fictional character Scarlett O'Hara, without a doubt. Really? Oh, Scarlett O'Hara or Rhett? But I would take Scarlett or Rhett. I would really? just want one or both. Yes. You could do both. Yes. This is your segment. You could do <laughs> yes. It's very So cool. for, for Scarlett O'Hara, the reason that she, well, that was one of my, it remains one of my favorite books and movies of all time. And I remember plowing through Gone with the Wind, which is about this thick, you know, and if you can't see me, I'm holding my hands about six inches apart. Um, it's about that thick and I couldn't stop reading it. And I probably read that when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And I loved her for all of the reasons that are obvious. And then all of the reasons too, that you have to question how, how could a woman do all of that? Why would a woman do all of that? How would it, how did a young woman come back from everything she came back with? How did she build an empire? How did she lose an empire? You know, how did she make the decisions to be brave and bold when, women weren't or they couldn't be or they shouldn't be so yes um if i could have an hour of her time i would enrich my soul <laughs> very nice very awesome that's really awesome what fictional character would you not like to meet though not like to meet not like to meet huh. okay give me a minute voldemort <laughs> one of the number one answers on the show actually <laughs> Yep. Yeah. Oh, or, 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 how about this one? Um, the shark from Jaws. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's pretty good. No, uh, thank you. He has a horrible, horrible bedside etiquette. So it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't treat the media well. No, he does not. <laughs> no. He eats them. What can he say? You know? <laughs> what is your favorite geek word, phrase, quote, or pose? Well, you have to forgive me this because, again, I'm from the Northeast and I grew up in Massachusetts, Mike, not too much, not too far south from you. I grew up in a place between the Cape and Boston. Okay. So my favorite expression, even though I don't use it all the time because people can't relate to it, even just living in New Hampshire, it wasn't the thing that it was down in Massachusetts, but wicked. wicked. It's wicked cold. It's wicked, wicked cold, guys. It's wicked cold. Yeah. It's wicked cold guy. It is ingrained. Um, it is ingrained in my speech DNA. <laughs> <laughs> it's ingrained. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny how fast it comes back. If you happen to be around everyone you grew up with, you know, if I go, if I go home and I spend some time with all of my best friends, I mean, we're tossing out wicked and dude 
as if it was, you know, terminology we use in our professional lives every day, which we do not. So it's, you fall right back into it. <laughs> last, uh, last, just last weekend, uh, they had a comic convention and it was the first, uh, time that this particular group had done a comic convention in Boston and they called it the wicked comic con. And I was like, how has nobody thought of that before? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 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 I could, I could, I can relate to that for sure. <laughs> nope, totally awesome. I love it, love it. What is your ideal geek occupation? Hmm. My ideal geek occupation, I think, would be. Hmm. Private investigator. Ooh, I like that. private investigator yes i would imagine you have some of those skills already yeah you can you can do your sleuthing but yet get paid for it (laughs) in as ingenious a way as you could imagine and still go home at night and hope that nobody knows who you are i could see that i totally could see that you know I could see a future Sam Spade in your life, you know. Yeah. Well, if you're Humphrey Bogart, probably not. But <laughs> touche, my friend. Touché. What geek occupation would you not like to do, though? Not like to do. Not like to do. Not like to do. So, I don't think that I would want to work in anything involving. The potential loss of an animal. Although I would love to be a zookeeper, I could not handle the loss of an animal. Although I would love to be a vet, I could not handle the loss of an animal. So saving animals, I'm all in. Losing animals, I couldn't possibly do it. It would crush me. No, totally understand that completely. That I could totally understand, you know. That's why my wife doesn't volunteer at the Humane Society because she just couldn't deal with it and everything mm-hmm. with what they have to go through. Yep. All right. Jennifer, are you ready for your final question? The geek I'm ready. Okay, right. bring it on. What is your ultimate geek fantasy? <laughs> she's snickering on this one no, I, they, they always snicker i don't know what that is all about i think it's the I, word fantasy, I, right? I think i think your mind whirls with all sorts of potential <laughs> answers to this question but if if i could project one thing it would it would be bringing a book of mine to life as a movie now i say that for a couple of reasons one and, and, and I actually would prefer if it was one of the two that are more narrative nonfiction story of somebody else's life than one purely my own doing, imagination. Because I love these last two books that are about somebody else's life first and foremost, but to share it in such a way that is not just written in word form, book form, but blown up with all of the overarching abilities of the industry to recreate what I have found to be some of the most brilliant aspects of life that I could ever have touched. And I just happened to have had the opportunity and very grateful to have done that. But what I've seen in these 
two stories are unique, all of that, but yet life over loss, um, recovering from unimaginable events, turning a life around, steadfast belief in yourself. And then in the, in the case of Made in Hollywood, blending old Hollywood to now, recreating it. I think we've missed some of that. So if I could ever project one geek out moment, it would be to bring these stories to movie form for the world to see because I value the two people that they're about that much. Wow. That's awesome. I love it. Love it. Hopefully it happens. Love it. Hope so too. Really, really hope so. Well, Jennifer, I've got some amazing news for you. You've <laughs> made it through the geek seat. Congratulations. <laughs> huzzah, huzzah. Mr. Mike Gordon, tell the young lady what she's won. You have won a lifetime subscription to the ESO Network, a value easily worth $68.04. <laughs> I, I did have concerns that you know <laughs> I might pull up a little short, but I'm really <laughs> relieved to hear that I've made it through. Yeah, once you get the halfway mark, it's just it's all downhill from here. It's really cruise downhill. control. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, Jennifer, it's been so wonderful having you join us here on the station. It was uh, wicked the- awesome. It was wicked awesome. It was so wicked awesome, guys. It was so (laughs) wicked cool. Um, (laughs) Tell us a little bit about where people can go to find your books and other things that you're up to. So my website is jvwrites.com, and you can find all of my books there and um, some some fun blurbs from celebrities that have (laughs) endorsed my books that are always, you know, oh, I always appreciate that and get a kick out of that, too. So you can find everything at jvwrites.com, some pictures from parts of my career. Um, Everything lives right there. Awesome. Well, we will have a link to that in our show notes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike and Mike. Total pleasure. Let's take a quick break, and we are going to be talking all about fried green tomatoes. This is Ashley Pauls with this week's Box Office Buzz. These days when we talk about summer movie season, I feel like it starts earlier and earlier each year. When you think of summer, you typically think June, July, August, but May has typically become a big month for movies due to all the Marvel Cinematic Universe films. And then now there are big movies that come out in April sometimes too. One of these blockbusters, or would-be blockbusters, is Fantastic Beasts, The The Secrets of Dumbledore. This franchise is super fascinating to me because the Harry Potter franchise was a best-selling series of books and hugely successful movies. And then now they've tried to go back to that same well of content with prequels. And I will say that overall, there are some things that I've enjoyed about the Fantastic Beasts series, but... These prequels just don't capture the same magic as the original Harry Potter story. And based on The Secrets of Dumbledore and its 60% Rotten Tomatoes rating, it looks like it's not going to necessarily blow people away by how good it is. It's always fascinating to me how when a certain franchise is successful, studios and creators really latch on to that and think we need to try to keep this going instead of just being willing to let something exist on its own. I feel like... The Marvel Cinematic Universe is rare in that this content just keeps going and going and going, and it's just as good, or in some ways, even better than what came in the past. 
I think sometimes it's wiser to just say, you know what, this series was successful. Let's leave it. And I am curious to see how well The Secrets of Dumbledore does at the box office. It's been a long time since the last movie. Are people still interested in this? I guess we'll find out this weekend. That's it for this week's box office buzz. If you're looking for more entertainment-related content, be sure to check over out my blog over on the ESO Podcast website. If you were a monster kid growing up, if you enjoyed Saturday mornings watching monster movie matinee, or staying up all night watching the midnight feature, then Monster Attack is the podcast for you. We not only look at classic old monster movies, we share our experience growing up as a monster kid. Join us every Monday for Monster Attack. Evelyn tried food. I'm sorry, honey. The game's almost over. I just want to see a little bit of it. She tried romance. If I'd answered the door wearing only cellophane, would you still be watching the baseball game? No, honey. I'd probably be checking you into a loony bin. Then, she met a new friend. Mrs. Cleo Threadgood, 82-year-old widow. Imagine that. (laughs) A good friend. I hate candy bars all over the house. What a candy bar ain't gonna fetch you none. What? No, but it's 10 or 11. Gave her some advice. You need some hormones. And told her a story that began long ago. Did the name Itchy Threadgood ring a bell? No, ma'am. I don't think so. You'd remember her. Itchy and her friend Ruth ran the Whistle Stop Cafe. Itchy was a character, all right. If you ever touch her again, I'll kill you. Well, I sure as hell scared him, didn't I? But how anybody could have thought she murdered that man is beyond me. You ain't fooling me, girly girl. You're in a whole mess of trouble. You understand? Did anybody really think she did it? Some said yes, some said no. Academy Award winner, Kathy Bates. Well, I got mad. Academy Award winner, Jessica Tandy. How many of them hormones you taking, honey? You didn't kill Ed now, did you? Not yet. I feel better because all these people have lived, as long as you remember Friends. Best friends. Yes, ma'am! What are you doing? Face it, girls. I'm older and I have more insurance. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Earth Station One. Now we're going back to the Rainbow Room. And instead of Darren this time, we got Mary in charge. And we're looking at fried green tomatoes. Take it away, Mary. Woohoo! Hi, everyone. Welcome to LGBTQIA plus 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 theater. That, that is a mouthful of fire. Ready <laughs> to cover everybody. So let's talk about fried green tomatoes in our ongoing quest to um, talk about queer coding and mainstream Hollywood cinema. 
Um, last time we actually talked about angels in America, which is way out there, but uh, today we're talking about something that's based on a book by Fanny Flagg that uh, in the book is pretty uh, obvious <laughs> what's going on and not, not a little less so in the movie, a little more toned down in the movie. Bright Green Tomatoes came out uh, just after Christmas in 1991 and actually was a pretty big box office hit. Did really well with the critics. Did I uh, think it cost them eleven million? They made about one hundred and twenty, so not bad. I think pretty they did pretty well for themselves. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think they had anything to complain about. Uh, probably one of the reasons why it did so well is that it um, really queer coded the lesbian relationship in it, which um, to people like me was pretty obvious but the mainstream audience is perhaps less so. Uh, th this also is a, uh, a very um, popular genre called uh, Southern Women's Lit, <laughs> which um, is uh, something that uh, ha uses specific tropes. Um, uh, mostly older women uh, perform uh, featuring very strong and enduring friendships where, uh, where women often band together in the face of adversity. So we'll, we'll, we'll have a really, I'll do a really quick recap and then we can kind of open it up to discussion and it's going to be really quick because I'm not going through <laughs> scene by scene because pretty much almost everyone, I've probably has seen fried green tomatoes by this point. And I don't you know, go I watch don't know it. why you would do that. Who would ever go scene by scene like that? I know. <laughs> Who would ever do that? So basically, this is a story about two lesbians. And yes, it's a mainstream movie. It's coded, but it's pretty obvious <laughs> that it is a romance between two women. Um who run a cafe in a small rural Alabama town. Uh, and it's also pretty much a fantasy because let me tell you, there is no small rural um, Southern town that is this accepting <laughs> about two women sharing their lives together, especially back in the thirties, but that's all right. It's, it's a fantasy. It's a movie. It's fiction. It's told in flashback uh, using a modern, uh, Kathy Bates is a modern day housewife uh, having a midlife crisis uh, as a framing device. She um, shows up at a nursing home to visit her. Um, well, in the book, it's her mother-in-law. In the movie, it's her aunt. Why they changed that, I don't know. But anyway, that person hates her. Didn't make sense <laughs> at that part, you know. Yeah, who knows? But anyway, she goes to uh, she goes to sit in the waiting room, and she meets Nanny Threadgood, who starts telling her the story of Iggy and Ruth, who are um, the two women in love back in the thirties. And uh, and uh, to wrap up the recap, one of the women has to die of cancer because we're queer people always have to die in a mainstream movie, at least one of them. There's no way they can have a happily ever after. And uh, though we do get to see the abusive ex-hubby of one of the protagonists get killed, barbecued, and fed to the town's racist sheriff. <laughs> so <laughs> we take kind of a dark turn there. <laughs> It was like it's cannibalism at its the, best. It was it's awesome. It's all part of the fun. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, when did this gonna I didn't I really didn't expect Fighter Games Tomatoes to turn into Sweeney Todd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well it's I mean, this is a movie that's that's boy, trying to do a lot. This is a movie I really enjoy, don't get me wrong. 
but it is trying to sort of um, solve all the world's problems. Uh, one thing uh, there's, um, it's, you know, it's mostly about prejudice and about letting people lead their own lives, uh, especially women, especially black people, though, I will say there's a lot of sort of racist tropes in the sense that uh, the black people are more fleshed out in the book. They are very much caricatures in the movie, kind of silent and saintly. Um, but they do they do feature in the plot. Um, and in the book, there's a there is a lot of racism in the book. Now it's racism because of the time that it's set in. Uh, but it is there. Yeah, because that could never happen now. Yeah, oh, yeah, God forbid. Right. <laughs> nope. Oh. <laughs> wow. You Sorry. know, it's it's interesting that uh, the parallels between homophobia and racism and the way in which um, racism was more overt during that time. Well, during the time I was growing up, which is the time of this movie, um, I mean, we had Klan rallies downtown still going on uh so and and i will and i will say that uh while racism may be less overt in the time period we are living in now though i would argue <laughs> that point also but uh yeah it was really we, we were talking pretty open at this time period uh, and also while the story of the story of Iggy and Ruth is very uplifting, it's as I said before, it is it's a fantasy because this is not what it was like in small southern towns. Um, having been in a lot of small southern towns myself, um, both growing up and passing through, but it's you know the thing also is that when I was when I was growing up. This movie was made in 1991, um, and at a time where there was almost zero lesbian representation. Um, I think Thelma and Louise was a, like six months before this. There was kind of almost an explosion of les lesbian film after this. Um, but when, when this first came out, there was pretty much nothing. And so a lot of people my age uh, fell in love with this film because it was all we had. There just wasn't anything else to see. You, you didn't see anything close to you on screen. Um, you know, you had to go to the queer coded movies that we've talked about earlier. Um, you know, even as far back as Some Like It Hot to find any queer representation. And so just seeing anything anything that celebrated uh, woman's love in any of its forms, you know, romantic friendship, whatever that is, it, that was um, eye-opening and inspiring. And so I will give this movie that. What did you guys think of it? Did you see it when it came out? Yes, we did. I had not seen it until this weekend. Oh, really? Wow. wow. I wow. thought I'd seen it before, but um, I had not. So, uh, yeah, when I started watching it and the first thing I saw was the uh, truck being pulled out of the uh, the drink, the river, I was like, oh, I don't expect that. I'm like, I don't think I've ever seen this before. So I didn't because I didn't expect it to be like, you know, 
I didn't expect there to be murder, but uh, you know, um, but uh, yeah, it was it was pretty eye opening, and and um, yeah, I mean, I I you know, obviously watching it, you know, as part of the programming that we're doing here, I was you know on the lookout for uh, you know coded coding, right? So, um, but I will say that. I didn't know, like, cause I hadn't read the book or anything. So, and I understand it's a lot more clear in the book, but in the movie, obviously it's, um, uh, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of coding and it's not, it's more ambiguous. Um, and whether that's a good thing or bad thing at the time, you know, that it was made, it was more ambiguous. And, and so I wasn't sure re watching it, if there were, if, you know, the movie was just trying to say, or, you know, trying in its own coded way, saying that they had a lesbian relationship or because of the time period that they were in, they, that was not something that was really open to them, you know? And I thought that was the tragedy in and of itself that they can't, they couldn't be open with their relationship because of the time period that they were in. So, so I, I kind of looked at it along those lines, as opposed to it just being coded, you know? That's a good way to put it actually. I think you could argue either way. I mean, women sure, did sure. have lesbian relationships. Like, I mean, women have been having lesbian relationships for ever since there's been women. Sure, sure, sure. But, and 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 yeah, and and you know, I mean, is it to the you know? I know that there was as for as many people that were applauding that this movie was was made and and well regarded. There was I know there was a, a lot of backlash about how um, because it was not explicit. Um, that it was not bold enough to be explicit, explicit like the book. And, and so, you know, I mean, if it was, would it have been a popular, you know, unfortunately, probably not at the time, but who knows. I will also say to play, to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit, as far as the backlash goes, that sometimes I get uncomfortable when it it's suggested that to be to, and a lesbian identity or any kind of queer identity only has to do with sex, whether they were having sex or not. And that's not the most important part as far as I'm concerned, not saying that doesn't enter into it and isn't important, but it's not, I don't think that defines necessarily defines a relationship between two women. I mean, I think, you know, pe people can fall in love and and never have sex there's a whole spectrum out there so to only identify it to say that the relationship is less you know because for if they did decide not to do that well no it's not it's every bit as important a love as any other love it's how they define it between themselves and i think that's actually a message of the movie is it's how you define it between yourselves it's not and the rest of the world doesn't get a say in it <laughs> They don't get to decide what, what you think and what you feel and who you love in whatever form you decide that that will take. No, very much so. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, for me, when I saw it back in 91, it was pretty obvious that they were a couple. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, out there or anything. But the way they played it off, you know, very soft-spoken, and, you know, her admitting her love and, you know, and it was just real interesting that it came across that way because, and seeing it, you know, this was almost what, 
30 years later since the last time I had watched it, I, it met, it hit on so many more spots than even the first time I saw it. It was, you know, it was, it was truly a love story and, you know, of caring and, you know, just having feelings for each other and being there for each other. And they were there through thick and thin. And so it was pretty awesome. There's a, there's, there's a lot of themes of, um, oh, I think the, one of the main themes going through it is, is just being there for each other. That, that, um, and yes, there are some, there actually are some, if you want to talk about queer coding, there are a couple of scenes that are <laughs> really obvious queer coding, like the, uh, the food fight scene, um, that's that's really a stand-in for for a lesbian sex scene. I got to tell you, if you were a queer person, you knew <laughs> exactly what they were what that meant. And also the the bee charmer scene, where she she hands her the honey. She says, "Take my honey" or something along that lines. So that's pretty obvious metaphor going on there. Um. And so, yeah, it's frustrating because Fanny Flagg is a very good storyteller. Um, and it is as problematic as some some things in the book are, like I said, about the racism. She she knows how to tell a tale. Um, and she she did write part of the screenplay, though it was actually rewritten by the director, even though he doesn't get a credit. And uh, he pretty much um, toned down <laughs> anything that made it more explicit that, that they were a couple. And I, he was told to do that by the producers. Um, but regardless of that, I mean, he did it. So, I mean, you know, there are probably arguments both ways. It re probably reached a broader audience because it was toned down. And maybe some of those people started to think about relationships between women in a different way. Who knows? Um, I mean, that's always the argument you can have about these sorts of movies. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think just not having seen the film and, and you know, sort of be just being aware of it. And it was, you know, it was nominated for a lot of awards. It won a lot of awards uh, on, on the circuit and everything like that. Um, it seemed to come from uh the popularity a few a couple years earlier of steel magnolias and in which case like there was a lot of movies about sort of women and women relationships particularly with with sisters and family but yet um I, and you know and and steel magnolias takes place i think in louisiana right so that's a southern thing too um so i just sort of associated it like that which obviously it's a different different a completely different story it is, but it's definitely based in that genre, that sort of Southern women genre, where you have these very deep-seated friendships and it's uh, that are forming, and it's kind of you know us against against them or us united in in adversity. And and I mean it, it's and maybe because it's versed in that, it it makes the 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 romantic story more palatable to some people because it's something they're already familiar with um those kind of i mean 
I mean, women tend to have those kind of friendships anyway. I mean, it's not just a Southern woman thing. I mean, that's a trope, but it's not. Right. I mean, that's, no, that's just something that happens naturally. So it's always, and it's always an interesting avenue to explore. Um, Did it frustrate me (laughs) as a young queer person when I first saw this and it wasn't more explicit? Yes, it did. But (laughs) You know, because were you familiar with the book first? I wasn't actually. I saw the movie first, and then I read the book. I'm glad I read the book because the book goes into more in depth than the characters. I mean, that's not really the fault of the movie. The movie only has so much time, and I think they do well with with the time they have. Um, though I do think that the black people are reduced more to caricatures in it, and uh, that that was something that. I mean, they, Ruth, Ruth and Iggy kind of come across as white saviors, that that kind of trope. Um, and that's really problematic because I, black people are people, they are not caricatures. I, uh, I also did wonder, I mean, on the credits, on the opening credits, you know, it says like special appearance by Cicely Tyson. And, and I wondered if Cicely Tyson's role was a bit beefed up because she was being played by Cicely Tyson. Well, actually, you get to know more about that character in the book and about their whole family, about the children. There's there's actually a pretty significant part of the book. The, and a the, lot of that was taken out here. The fact that she she's the one who actually kills uh, that woman's husband. Like, I was like, I wonder if that was like... Was Spoilers. <laughs> We're talking about spoilers, right? We always do spoilers. Yeah, it's been so, thirty years. I think we can spoil. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I didn't know if, like, I'm like, oh, okay, you know, because I mean, well, as a whodunit, whatever, it it doesn't it doesn't follow those tropes. It doesn't play that part, even though it does set up, you know, right from the very beginning with the, when you see the truck, and and you know that someone has died there someone was murdered um and then then within the first like you know was it five minutes buddy is killed by a train and uh you know played by chris o'donnell because you don't expect like oh my god chris o'donnell just got killed Um, yeah it's really funny to see chris o'donnell (laughs) so uh yeah i mean he wasn't like chris o'donnell that he wasn't robin then yet right i don't think but um no no no. uh but uh so it's like oh my god so like don't get used to anybody because and i do find like a lot of these a lot of these tales that take place in the south etc it's like yeah that's it was a dangerous time for anybody to be alive it doesn't seem like like life was was in high regard back then no well Well, yeah it was small town america at the time and you know it was a farming community and there was probably a lot of rural death you know people dying in the field by farming accidents and people, you know, and hospitals were far and few between too. Not to mention you got the KKK running all over the place, like doing their thing. So, I mean, yeah, yes, the KKK like, is everywhere. Alabama yeah. KKK, Georgia KKK. I mean, I mean, even, yeah. I mean, even, even the cop who were kind of like, okay, he's not so bad, but like he's an admitted member of the the local affiliate, right? In the Alabama KKK. So it's like, it's like, ugh, like this. Is I don't just... recognize any of you boys over there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, how could you tell by the sheets? Like, okay, I guess, you know, 
Whatever. Looking at your boots, you don't look like you're from around here. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Those sheets don't look like Alabama sheets. Uh, you know. <laughs> so now it was it was interesting to see that. Yeah. Oh, the South at the time was not you know a savory place, but you know it hadn't changed. Like Mary said, all that much. My mother-in-law moved to Atlanta in 1962. And she used to tell us, um, even though they were living in the city of Atlanta, um, things were so not built up that she could see the uh, light from the cross burnings in Stone Mountain. And, you know, back then. And that was in the early 60s, you know, 30 years after this movie was supposed to take place. It's, you know, so things hadn't changed all that much at that point. No, well, I I mean, I've told this story before, but I'll just quickly do it again. When I went to first test for my driver's license, I was just sitting next to a guy and we were just talking because we were both nervous waiting to do our driving test. He had just moved to the city and they burned a cross on his lawn the night before. Uh, That's horrible. And that was the 80s. (laughs) So I think... Have things changed? Yes. Have they not changed? Yes. <laughs> you know, is there more opportunity? Yes. Is there still violence? Maybe just as much violence as there ever was? Yes. No. It's With, amazing. Uh, getting back to this movie. So as far as the, um, as far as the book goes, and I just want to sort of just be clear with my own head on this. Um, uh, the book in the book, it's more, ex- it's, uh, you know, explicit that, and I don't mean in a, like, you know, raunchy way that, uh, that Ruth and uh, Iggy are, are a lesbian couple. Um, what about the relationship between Minnie and Evelyn? Is that like, is that portrayed pretty accurately in the, in the movie or is that, does that go, is that, is there coding there too? No, that's actually fairly accurate. Um, the only weird thing about that is for some bizarre reason, and I don't know why, at the end of this movie, the director suddenly decided that he was going to make you wonder whether Minnie was really itchy. Yeah, well, that's pretty clear. I mean, he links it right there. Like, there's not a lot of ambiguity there. And it makes no sense at all because she actually says she had earlier in the movie, Minnie says she, um, had married one of the Threadgood brothers and had a child with them. So it would, doesn't make any sense for her to be itchy. Um, yeah, so it, I don't know why he does that. As far as the movie goes, it's very strange though, because with the cast that they have, there's just like the, with everything that she knows that Nini knows and, and everybody that we see, like there's just no one else she could be. Like she knows all these stories, all these things happen and everything like that. And there's no other woman character that is privy to all of that other than, you know, the two leads. So, so it just sort of the movie really. And so the last scene doesn't come as really any surprise because it doesn't really leave you with many other options. I don't think. Yeah, I don't know the, if that's yeah. true in the book. No, it's not true at all. I mean, right. they are distinctly separate characters. Cool. Yeah. And Minnie. They are not, they are, they are not meant to be the same. I don't know why he decided to do that. Cause I don't think it adds to anything. No, it I don't doesn't. think it's necessary. 
it didn't seem like, oh, she's a mysterious narrator or something like that. Who is this person? No, it's, it kind of threw it off. And the very first time I saw it, I thought she was Iggy. And because I missed the line that she was married to one of the brothers. And so it was just interesting to see, especially, you know, the whole thing at the end when they went to the grave and there was the, you know, there was the honeycomb and there was the note. It's like, it's pretty obvious who left it there, you know, type thing. Yeah. Well, Iggy is in the book. Iggy is still alive in the present time. Right. Um, but they are very distinctly separate characters. It, uh, it, it also kind of makes it like it adds to the, the movie version where um, it's trying to sort of determine that, um, that Iggy, Minnie, whatever you want to call her, is, it, it's, it, it's more even distant that it's a, les- a pure re- lesbian relationship. Because, look, she got married, she had kids, so she, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that, right? Well, who knows? Maybe that was his way of trying, trying to soften it even more. Right. That's what I'm saying. Um, That's what I'm suggesting. That like they were trying to say, like, okay, well, yeah, let's put a little bit more distance between that that thought, you know. Yeah. So, how has how has this movie, like you said, once it came out, obviously, you know, between this and Steel Magnolias and some of the other ones, uh, you know, that we we did get a lot of other um, Southern women. Uh, movies that be like that genre places in the heart comes, I think uh, shortly after this as well. So you get like a lot of these like amazing actresses uh, having opportunities to play these parts. But as far as, so that, that genre like really gets big or continues to get big. But what about um, as far as other, you know, lesbian, whether they're coded or not mainstream movies, does that, does this help a lot? Well, not so much mainstream movies, but there are there is kind of an explosion of lesbian movies in like the next ten years after this. Um, I can't remember all the names, but I think Go Fish is one. I I, I want to be a cheerleader. I think is another one, something like that. There's several of them. Uh, some of them which are quite good, which I considered actually, you know, bringing on to talk about later sometime in the future on our podcast. Um. And and yes, and, and you can pretty much trace them directly back to Fried Green Tomatoes' success and say that they may not have been made um, without, um, without that being such a success. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the way everything kind of works, you know, it, it builds on what, what went before. So even though you can criticize Fried Green Tomatoes' and say maybe it didn't go far enough. Well, it's still, I would say, directly led to um, stories that that, um, did, that went a lot farther and were more open about talking about lesbian characters. I mean, it has its place. <laughs> what did you guys think of the, the Kathy Bates and the husband and that part of the storyline? You know, Part of that left me very flat. I was more interested in the flashback story than the current day story in a lot of ways. I was kind of more interested in that, but I did notice because I have seen parts of fried green tomatoes. Some of it has gone like, you know, I mean, 
to use the term modern now that wasn't really applied then, but some of it, it went kind of viral. There were a lot of scenes that are considered, you know, classics like the scene where Kathy Bates likes rams her car into the Volkswagen over and over and over again. And says, how do you uh, accidentally hit a car six times? I think it's the most, probably the most famous quote of the movie, right. Is, uh, or one of the most famous quotes of the movie is like, uh, honey, I'm older and I have more insurance, right? Like yes. that's like a big, and so, so that I think, in a lot of respect, got a lot of the, I don't want to say headlines, but I mean, I think a lot of the main focus uh, in marketing this movie was on that, I think. Well, I, I think, I know, like I said, this movie's trying to say so much that sometimes it gets spread thin. Um, I think in, in this instance, you know, it's a little, it's more fleshed out in the book. The movie's only got so much time to go mm-hmm. through all this. But, um, you know, it, it's also speaking to, to uh, how women are erased or, you know, turn inv- invisible after a certain age, especially ones that have basically lived their whole lives for somebody else, usually a husband. Um, and their kids leave the house and they have nothing, they have nowhere to go and nothing to do. I mean, or at least that's how they feel because they've spent their whole lives revolved around these other people. And so, I mean, and that's certainly something that that should be explored and talked about. I mean, I agree that perhaps it didn't, it didn't, it didn't go into a lot of depth. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's kind of just played for laughs. Uh, And I mean, even she is, is a bit of a caricature in the movie. You know, she kind of goes through these obvious steps of finding herself and um, starting an, a, a more fulfilling life. And it's kind of heavy handed, in my opinion. Even though I think Kathy Bates and Jessica Tandy are wonderful. Oh, they and, were. And, they and do it. Were. You know, they play their parts very well. I mean, this is a great cast. Oh, yeah. I was just about to say, I'm like, I think there's winners all around the the board like you know the main the main four women that are in this uh are just outstanding and they 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 work so well together they they really do they play off each other wonderfully i mean there's there's real um tension however you want to define it define it between Iggy and ruth you know mary stewart masterson and, and mary louise parker are both just um you know, have so much charisma yeah, and chemistry all, between each other. Both are so very young compared to other projects they've done much later. Oh, I know. They're just babies. In <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, you know, I mean, we, we've seen, uh, most notably, we've seen Parker um, in, um, what, Angels uh, that we reviewed Angels last in America. year. Yeah, that yeah. we reviewed last year. And uh she's just an amazing actress but she has that you know obviously uh when she brings what she brings to the role is just her own quirkiness um and uh and yeah i would not be surprised to learn that she and and uh the other mary in this uh, mary uh, mm-hmm. a lot of marys involved with this uh i i can understand your uh, attraction to it um, <laughs> wow <laughs> um but uh, uh, Mary Louise Parker and also uh, Mary Stuart Masterson, 
three name Marys too. Weird. Uh, but um, anyway, that uh, I would not be surprised at all to learn if they, you know, when they were filming it, when they were making it, if they were not, uh, you know, saying like, screw the code, we're, we're approaching this as if we were, you know, having a lesbian relationship. Well, I think they were. I mean, there's there's some interviews with the actresses um, that have said they were basic, basically playing it that way. And that there were even some scenes shot that were more explicit and uh, not sexually explicit, but just explicit and and defining them as a couple that got, got cut out. Mm-hmm. Well, totally could understand that. And it was interesting, too, because there were scenes and you felt like they were going to go a little further, but then it switched scenes. It was like, what? And everything. It felt like, you know, it was like implied type stuff. Use your imagination folks. To say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious that it's been toned down. Uh, especially if you read the book, even though, I mean, even the book, that fam- the, the author is a lesbian. And um, I mean, she's had a couple of relationships with with also other well-known lesbians. But even in the book, uh, while it's very, very obvious and she makes it very clear they are having a romantic relationship, I'm not sure she ever uses the word lesbian. Mm. Now, she wrote it in 1987. Oh, so it wasn't that far of a difference. Yeah, I think uh, the film was made in 91. Yeah. yeah. So I found And that things were very different then. Oh, yeah, of course they were. It's also in the middle of the AIDS crisis. Yeah. You know, there and every every anything queer is kind of being seen through that that lens. Well, yeah, when you mentioned that, you know, of course uh one of the women has to die because that's how lesbian relationships were punished on screen or whatever. I mean, we've seen that happen over and over again with, with males as well, uh, particularly when it comes to like, you know, usually the culprit is AIDS. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, if you think of Philadelphia, right. You know, movies like that. Sort of, but yeah, that's so. what, I mean, we've said before many times, I think, you know, when all the, all the movies that uh, we reviewed and especially, you know, the ones that Darren in particular has chosen, it's like, yeah, they don't usually end well. <laughs> like, they no, don't, they don't some, end well. Somebody always has to die <laughs> or some, some tragedy. Look what happened with uh, Torch Song Trilogy when we watched that. What happened to Matthew Broderick's character? Yeah, I, I was, I was surprised when, uh, you know, Ruth, gets sick and dies because there's just no uh there's no leading up to it all of a sudden it just is there it happens and yeah, it it's like comes oh out of nowhere <laughs> yeah it just comes out of nowhere is, it, is that the way it is in the book too it just comes out of nowhere it kind of is because the book is sort of it's told in a, <laughs> in a bunch of different scenes mm-hmm. um it's 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 not really a um like a a through line story. It's just like kind of these scenes that are stitched together. And um, there's, there's kind of a a framing device where there's a newsletter for the town called the Weems weekly that kind of separates each chapter and, you know, brings up some event and then the chapter goes more into whatever that event was. Now it was interesting to, 
like the one thing you know it's like the one scene with the courthouse scene when you know itchy was on trial and the preacher out out lies to protect her and it was just like I was actually shocked by that. I was like, oh, he's going to tell the truth, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, yeah, he he knew that this guy was a jerk and everything who died, but it was just very, very interesting to do it. And it was actually kind of funny. During this whole movie, I had the Dixie Chicks song, Goodbye Earl, going through my head. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, it was just like, Okay, I could see it. So, and it was, it was fun. Frank, Frank's a pretty irredeemable character. No, there was nothing redeemable about the guy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty easy to hate Frank. Oh yeah, well, especially since you know he's being played by a guy who's very much a in real life very much a right wing nut, a jerk. Yeah, yeah, Nick Cersei is. Yeah, don't don't follow him on Twitter, kids. <laughs> no. The word of advice. Yeah, I like his acting work. Uh, he was unjustified for a long time, and I really liked his role in that. But man, uh, I I I I opted not to follow him on Twitter and the social media pretty quickly because I was like, oh nope, I don't want to be any part of this. So seeing him in this kind of role, especially when he's wearing a hood, I was like, oh yeah, that. That's 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 him. He's just it's him. himself. <laughs> yeah. Did he, did he bring that from home? Did they? Did they actually, no. Just, ah, sorry. I'm wow, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, yeah. So anyway, but uh, not that I blame uh, you for what you said, but wow, Mike. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, let the death threats commence. <laughs> <laughs> send, send, send your email to Mike G at yeah, really. um, PO Box. But uh, no, I, I'm yeah, I'm really curious. I mean, I, I you know, I, another movie that is made, uh, I think shortly, I thought it was after, but shortly before this was The Color Purple, which kind of touches on some some uh, lesbian themes as well. Yeah, that's also a book that where it's very obvious. I mean, very very yes. clear. There's yes. a lesbian relationship. <laughs> yeah, because I I had uh, I had read the book. Because I, I, you know, once it was announced that Steven Spielberg was making the movie, I was like, oh, I should. I, so I read the book first and I was like, wow, how are they going to do this? <laughs> and, <just> don't. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it's, it's there, but it's, yeah, it's very toned down. It's yeah. very toned down, which is like, so um, let me ask you, Mary. So like, if this would be made today, uh, if they did a remake of this, cause you know, they were making everything. Um, <laughs> so it's not out of the realm of possibilities how how um difficult do you think it would be to be a little bit more open about it now i don't think it would be that difficult to be open about it now i think it would i think that they would probably not now don't get me wrong (laughs) (laughs) uh there's still a lot of queer coding and queer baiting going on these days um however uh there's been enough um, more more explicit stories out there that I think they could get away with um, an explicit lesbian relationship, and it wouldn't necessarily 
detract from the box office as long as it was a was a good movie. I would uh I would I wouldn't be surprised if this was remade and it was remade in more explicit way or at least more honest faithful adaptation to the book and so that sort of way. And there was some backlash from people who just didn't understand that that was there to begin with, right? Like, because yeah. I think this was, you know, even though it's there uh, and it's based on a book that had it there, um, I, I got the impression that this was, this is still considered a secret lesbian movie, right? Instead of like an <laughs> well, actual- it is. I mean, it's almost a, like there, there's a genre called secret gay movies and quotes. <laughs> and, and yeah, this is one of them. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes, you know, I'll be honest, sometimes I, I think some of that, sometimes I see things like that and I'm like, I don't know if that's really accurate, but in this case, obviously I, I, I can see that it's there and it was there from the beginning. Um, let me ask you this. Um, since you like this movie so much, I know you've seen it many, many, many times um, and like the story so much, would you be open to seeing a remake of this? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> Because so many times remakes are terrible. Sure, sure. It'd be darker. I mean, and, no, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I mean, in some ways, it, I, I'd kind of like to see a remake of it um, to see to see what they could do um, with a more honest interpretation of what's going on. But it, it's, but also a lot of times when when people try to do that, they it turns out not to be as honest as they think it is. <laughs> you know, it's still made by an establishment that isn't, doesn't really understand uh, where these people are coming from. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, if they did do a remake, yeah, I'd, I'd go to see it, but I, I'd probably have some reservations about it but i mean you know i could probably say that about any remake of any movie sure. i've liked sure yeah obviously it would depend on the people behind it i mean look if if jane champions came out and said this is my next movie i'd be like oh, okay this this is perfect yeah. right <laughs> I mean, well yeah i mean obviously it would depend on who was making it sure sure you know uh there are some of the differences from the some of the ways in which they toned it down was like that are different from the book are like in the movie it's it's made very clear that that Ruth is having or at least has a crush on Buddy mm-hmm. on on the Chris O'Donnell character yes that they are at perhaps the beginning of a relationship that isn't at all in the book really she has n- zero relationship with Buddy how was she introduced then in the book? She comes. She's she's a friend of the family that that just comes to visit to try to help with Iggy, who's devastated from losing her brother. But oh, so she, but she, wasn't she, there. she is not. Yeah, she she has not had a relationship with Buddy and has not met Iggy before that. Because yeah, it was kind of funny, you know, poor Buddy chasing after the hat that kept on blowing and blowing and blowing. Yeah, but you knew where that was going. I'm like, it's on the train tracks. This is not yeah. going to end well. I thought, I, he, I thought he escaped, and I'm like, they're not going to do that. And then, yeah. What I'm I can understand kill Robin. Is, isn't, isn't, I mean, why why don't you just hate trains after that? <laughs> you know, the whole know. scene where they're getting on the train and throwing out the food? <laughs> I thought about that, too. I'm like, they're getting on a train. Isn't that, like, yeah, the last thing you want to be on? Right, um, exactly. And then the poor little kid who lost his arm 
on the same train track. Yeah, I mean the trains, the trains in this family, man, they have that's the real war. Right? <laughs> yeah, you just trains are out to get these people. Yeah, especially the guys. Um, I did notice though, but on the same token, like even though that she's not in the book there in that scene, uh, you know, it is established right away when the three of them go off uh, from the wedding and to go onto the train tracks or whatever. Uh, it's the two women that hold hands. Yeah, that's true. Which I that's I thought true. was really interesting. I was like, oh, what's happening here? Hmm. Also in the book, Iggy actually has a brief relationship where it's really made clear that it's a sexual relationship with a woman named Eva Bates, who's kind of um, somebody uh, she's, she hangs around the river club that Iggy likes to go to, to play poker. And she's kind of a free spirit, gambles, drinks. And she sort of takes Iggy under her wing yeah, I noticed that uh, that I believe that character is in the movie, but she's downplayed very briefly. Yeah. I mean, she actually has a much bigger part in the book. Because yeah. I did um, notice the um, the actress that uh, plays her, I, I I recognize from I can't remember what else I'd seen her in, but something else. But anyway, yeah, I think she works. Uh, she's worked with uh, uh, David Lynch on some movies, so I was like, oh, this is going to be creepy. No, but they never did. <laughs> I, I don't know if they shot more of that and then just cut it out or if they just decided from the beginning to kind of cut that character out. I'd be curious to see if there was a, any deleted scenes for this movie. You know, if anyone has the DVD or Blu-ray. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I would be curious, too. I don't have the DVD, but I would like, yeah, I have to do some research on that and find out. Not, I don't know if they were deleted or if they're available or whatever, but I did see, I think it was an interview with um, one of the two actresses. I'm not sure if it was Mary Louise or uh, the other Mary, but they said that there was some, uh, some other footage that was filmed that made it not sexual, but that made it more um, obvious that their relationship was more uh, a, um, of a couple, let's mm-hmm. say. Yeah, I don't know if any of that footage still exists or not. Yeah, um, I, I was looking for the quote here. She said it wasn't a love scene, but they were like clearly a love relationship type of fight, jealousy, uh, some sensual kind of stuff in there. We were clearing, we were clearly playing that. That's what she says. So. Okay. Well, very cool. This has been interesting, at least to talk about. And if folks, if you haven't seen this movie, it is wonderful. It really yes. Oh, yeah, I, the first time I've seen it, and, and it still holds up, and it's on Peacock, yes. which which make your own jokes about. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, what does it say about me? I rented it on Amazon, so there you go. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, there you go. But definitely worth checking out, folks. It is widely available. Um, please watch it and we'd love to hear from you guys what did you guys think of it and do you agree with what we said or was there more to it that we, we didn't even notice or anything we definitely would love to hear from you guys on that feedback at our station one of course is always a great way to get in touch with us let's take a quick break and our friend Goff is here to actually talk about his new project so carry on Hey 
everybody, Michelle here with an iconic rock talk show moment. We are getting on to mid-April, believe it or not, and that means it's almost time for Record Store Day. This year marks the 15th anniversary of Record Store Day, which will be Saturday, April 23rd. This year it will be a physical, in the actual stores, uh, Record Store Day. However, mindful of the fact that we are still in a time of shipment delays and production shortages, you know, think of things like cream cheese and cat food. Oh God, the cat food. Uh, anyway, mindful of that, there is another day designated June 18th called Drops Day. Drops Day is the date if there are any titles scheduled for Record Store Day, but they are not in the stores due to an unforeseen circumstance, they will be available on June 18th. As always, you can go to recordstoreday.com, check out the list of participating stores and the list of releases. Um, as always, these are predominantly vinyl, and they are made up of rare reissues, uh, deluxe sets, colored vinyls, things that you don't see every day. Uh, and among some of the standouts on this year's list, uh, Angelo Badalamente's soundtrack to Blue Velvet, Doctor Who Dead Air on Green Swirl Vinyl, uh, David Bowie always, there's a presence at Record Store Day this year. It is Brilliant Adventure and the Toy EP, uh, Prince the Gold Experience, Stevie Nicks, Belladonna, uh, multi-disc set. Uh, but there is music for every kind of genre, uh, something for everybody, jazz, country, Americana, blues, folk, classical. There's a little bit of everything there. So get on to recordstoreday.com. Check out that list, make your list, and get ready to go. This has been the Iconic Rock Talk Show Moment, and we'll catch you next time. Hey, Martha. What? Do you like nerd stuff? I do. And do you like adult beverages? I super do. <laughs> well, then you should join us with a drink. With a drink. With a drink. On, but first, let's talk nerdy. Clink. <laughs> On the ESO Network. We'll see you on Tuesday. Maybe next Tuesday. Maybe. Now it's time for the Creative Outlet segment. And our friend Goff is back. Welcome back, sir. Hey there. How you, how you fellas doing? I feel, like, uh, I feel like I really am part of the team now. Every few months, uh, you lads have me on, which is fantastic. And... Uh, I get to chat about more of the uh, the nonsense that Beanuts Productions is creating, so it's uh, very cool indeed. Well, you are part of the family, and you know, once you get pulled in, you know, you can never get out. So it, <laughs> it's, it's a cool it's like thing. An, it's like a, a, a good cult, not one of the bad ones. <laughs> depends on who you ask. It depends on who you ask. That. <laughs> But um, how are things going over at Beer Nuts Productions? You guys have some amazing stuff happening, and we were lucky enough to actually catch your new film. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so we've got a brand new film out. It's uh, it's actually my twenty fifth film. It's called The Education System. It's another mockumentary uh, ripping the whole uh, education system apart. So there's a bunch of little sketches to show how. Uh, what you're taught in schools may or may not be advantageous to you in later life. And then there's a few interviews with a uh, 
a politician, an education minister politician, plus a, a union leader, uh, parents, and also an employer of uh, people as well. So I tried to cover the whole gamut of people that are involved with the education system to, uh, to make up this 30-minute uh, uh, piece of fun. It is a lot of fun. And, and one question I have to ask you right from the bat, because I think this is a situation where um, certainly that the British influence is a little bit uh, different. Uh, the British experience is a little bit different than it is here in the States where public and private schools are, are switched, right? Yeah. What, so what, so we, pub, what we consider, public yeah, what we consider like public schools, you you guys consider private schools, correct? Well, pu- public schools are government schools. That's public. And private schools are where the rich people go. So, yeah. That's okay. Essentially yeah. So, this, how that works. so it is about the same. Okay. Oh, no, it is the same completely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, public is government and, uh, and yeah, private is all the, uh, the rich folks. <laughs> yeah. So, I not, so it's not like us who poor slobs, you know, <laughs> we all went to public. It's <laughs> very true. Very true indeed. So that is awesome. And you came up with a whammy this time. And you guys always come with your guns loaded a lot of times. But this time you hit home quite a bit because how many of us said, how how many of us are going to actually use algebra in real life? Or how many people are going to be using this class or this class? And you actually show what people do when they try to use it in real life. Well, yes. So there's 13 of those sketches to start the film. And uh, it was funny because I, I wrote about three of the, or four of them straight up. So the maths one, uh, the English one, the science one. And I think there was one more I, I wrote. And then I was like, oh, I'm now going to have to go through and think about all the subjects you get taught at school and come up with something because I just can't have one or two. I've got I to include all the extracurriculars and all that sort of stuff as well. So it's not just about maths, English and science. It's all the other stuff as well so yeah that's uh that's where those uh 13 uh, sketches up front came from so yes yeah the 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 arts once again takes a little bit of a hit <laughs> well yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes it does but you know in my defense like i've said to you fellas uh previously i do like to give everybody a fair whack so that's why absolutely we've got the the very conservative education minister and then the very uh left-leaning uh union leader so uh, so, yeah, so I, I like to give both sides uh, an equal whack so that uh, no one feels left out, you know? <laughs> right. They all, they all come back with their jaws a little sore. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a, somebody called me the other day an equal opportunist offender, and I kind of like that, to be honest, yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. Oh, yeah. You, you leave no stone unturned in this one. And it's awesome. It is awesome. And... You have you, you could tell you guys are having fun doing this, and you. I think this is one of your largest casts too. It seems like. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's 52 total actors because there, there's 13 voiceovers, and then uh, whatever the mask would say, 49. Uh, does that sound right? No, 39. I was 10. 39 on-screen actors and 13 voiceover actors. So yeah. So and it was really important to me to make sure that everybody. Uh, was different and suited their parts. I didn't want anybody uh, repeating, uh, like I didn't want the same uh, one actor playing two separate roles or anything like that. So uh, it, it was quite a exhaustive process with casting because there's uh, quite a few actual films, uh, big budget films going on at the moment on the Gold Coast. So a lot of uh, Beer Nuts regulars are actually involved in a couple of other projects at the moment. So 
Uh, I mean, there are some uh, familiar faces that people will recognise from uh, previous Beer Nuts films, but there's, uh, I did have to go out and uh, cast a few new actors for this one as well, which, which is a good thing because, you know, it uh, means I get to meet some new fantastic talent and have them in my films, and it means my, uh, my range of actors is now more. So for the next project, I've got more actors to pick from. But, um, yeah, so uh, uh, casting took a little bit longer this time around because of the huge cast but hey look i was super happy with how they all did they absolutely nailed it every single one of them just crushed it which was uh very pleasing i yeah. think i think you're trying just to get it to the point where you could say golf gray and a cast of millions you know <laughs> well yeah yeah see you're starting your own cold i'm starting the beer nuts one so i gotta get them <laughs> in you see so yeah well, it is a it is a great credit to you, your crew, and the entire cast. That uh, as we were we talked a little bit off air, but uh, you know, you guys had to deal with all the uh, the constant rainfall you've been getting as well, and which is obvious. But you guys worked worked through it, which is awesome. Yeah, well, the, nobody complained, which was fantastic. Um, but yeah, there was a few times it was funny. So uh, we're in one particular location, and uh, we filmed five scenes at that particular location four of them being outside and one of them being inside. So it was kind of like uh, there's a lot of costume work in this as well. So it was like Claire would get the actors ready to go and we just sort of hold off and wait. And is the rain going to steady down? Yeah, we've got about five minutes. Get out there real quick. So we get out there, punch out a scene, and then it starts absolutely hosing down with rain again. We have to run back inside. There was a couple of times where we were like, oh, screw it we just got to keep going and we did and like i say the actors were great they didn't complain actually it was funny uh aaron pearl who who was in the maths sketch who plays the pedestrian in the math sketch he got very very wet and uh, poor guy but he was really good about it he just kept turning to me and saying goth i shower in this stuff so it's totally fine man so he was <laughs> he, he was a real good sport about it so i've got to give credit where credit's due you know nobody whinged or complained They all just got on, did their job, and they did it really, really well. And look, uh, at the end of the day, I was really happy in regards to the fact that the weather didn't actually affect the outcome of the film because it was raining so heavily and there were like literally floods all over town that it it could have affected the final product in a range of different ways, but it didn't at all. The final product is exactly what I wanted. So I was very lucky in that regard that the... uh, the crappy weather didn't uh, didn't spoil the film in any way. We, uh, yeah, so yeah, very happy indeed. Yeah, in fact, I think you had it work to your advantage. I mean, that opening intro where I think the the punchline at the end is it said, you know, like here I am, like just an idiot in the rain, like covering this, uh, and you made it work in your favor, which was really funny. Yeah, yeah, well, that's uh, yeah. So on that day, obviously, I, I knew that it wasn't going to stop. So, and obviously, I'm the writer <laughs> of the project, so. I have the ability to throw an extra line in there if needed, which is exactly what I did because otherwise people would be going, why the hell is he standing out in the rain? That makes no sense at all. So I had to, I had to do something. So, yeah, so I gave it a quick uh, – I gave the weather a quick shout-out to uh, throw in an extra joke in there. So, yes, indeed. How um, – just real quick because I don't know if we've – I think we've covered a list, this a little bit, but as far as – since you're the writer of the piece – do you allow your actors any leeway or does it have to be, I mean, are you really strict about following the script as is? Yeah, no, I'm really strict about following the script. Uh, there's a few reasons for that. Uh, the first one being I take a lot of time and care in how I write it. So mm-hmm. I want it delivered how I write it. Also with comedy, 
uh, it's very specific. Like if a joke isn't worded just right, then it won't land. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we've all been to a party where there's a guy telling a joke and for some reason, I mean, he means well and he's got good intentions, but he just tells the joke so atrociously, it's just like nails down a chalkboard. You know what I mean? It's just terrible. So it's really important with comedy that you get it absolutely spot on. So I am really, uh, really particular with the actors. And look, some actors don't like that. Some actors like to improvise. And so they just don't work for me. But, you know, that's just, <laughs> which is, hey, look, that's fine, man. I mean, that's totally cool. Like, I get it. I'm not everybody's cup of tea. And that's fine. I mean, that's, that's how life works. So that's fine. So there's some actors that really enjoy the way I direct and the way I write. And other actors aren't so keen because they like a more free sort of a liberating experience, I suppose. But no, I, I'm very precise with my scripts. And so I like the actors to stick exactly to what is written. And uh, yeah, uh, they do. And they do a great job. So I'm, I'm very pleased with what they, what they give me in the end. Absolutely. Oh, I'm sure. Do you have the different like, actors in mind when you're writing these parts? Or do you just write the parts and then try to fit what you know the character to look like and such yeah so i have a specific idea when i'm writing a script i've got like a i don't think about an actor that i know but i've got like an idea of what the character looks like and sounds like as i'm writing it and then after i finish writing it it comes time to casting i go through the script and i'm like ah well he'd be a good fit for that and she'd be a good fit for that uh, but I don't know anybody who would quite suit that. So that's one that I'm going to have to audition for. So, And then, of course, there is the times, obviously, when I contact the actor that I really want and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, Goff, I'm already booked. I can't do it. So I'm like, ah. So then I either have to think of somebody else that I know who might fit it or then I do an audition for that role. So, But, yeah, no, I write the scripts without having any – the only thing I do think about, because obviously my budgets are limited – uh, th- that's the only thing I'm thinking about in regards to I- I've got to make sure that I don't have any outrageous locations that I just can't get my hands on or I can't have, you know, massive big special effects that I just can't afford. So that's the only thing that's in the back of my mind when I'm writing a script. Besides that, I leave it open and then I, I just, because uh, c- I don't want to stifle the creativity, so I just plough on through and then after it's done, I budget it cast it and do all that sort of stuff so yeah but it's uh i want to leave myself as free as i can when i'm writing it so that i don't sort of give myself any roadblocks if that makes sense no totally it truly does this is awesome man i love what you're doing and i think you're getting better at it too which is really awesome oh thank you very much i appreciate that yeah no look uh, i uh i've got a really fantastic crew around me now uh the, the crew that I've got with me has been with me for quite a, a few years now with uh, Scott as my production man because Simon, the old one, retired a few years back. So, yeah, Scott, the new production man, he's got some fantastic gear, which obviously helps a lot. And then, obviously, I've got a wonderful crew that works around me as well with Maddie and Claire and Pete and so forth. So And even uh, one or two of the actors, uh, you know, stick around and help out and stuff like that, which they don't have to. They're just... Uh, being good humans but um yeah so it's a it's a really cool little group that uh Nuts productions is uh is getting getting to do the work so uh, and that obviously like you say that's showing in the in the content as well you know so uh, that's really really cool so i'm, I'm really pleased that you uh, enjoyed it that's uh, that's good news absolutely 
Oh, most definitely golf. It's just amazing. So, folks, how can you see golf's new video? Tell us, my dear friend. Well, uh, yes, beernutsproductions.com. That's the one-stop shop. So, yeah, just uh, drink a beer and eat some nuts and watch a production. So, yeah, beernutsproductions.com. You can download the education system, the new film, plus all the other 25 films. We've got audio downloads. I've got a podcast that's been going now. We're up to 72 episodes on the podcast. Uh, yes, I know. I know. It is an achievement, man. You don't realize until you start a podcast that there's – it's full respect. People need to respect podcasters a bit more because it's not an easy gig, man. You've got to line up the guests and you've got to hope they show up. You've got to, you know, research the person so you don't sound like an idiot when you're interviewing them. I mean, it's not an easy gig. People need to uh, give podcasters a little bit more credit. That's why most podcasts fold after two or three episodes. But anyway – Got uh, got that going on. So, yeah, so, uh, yeah, beernutsproductions.com and, of course, on all the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and, of course, our YouTube channel has tons of clips on it as well. So just Beernuts Productions on YouTube as well. So, yeah, all over the place. So just type in Beernuts Productions and we will we will appear. No, I totally look forward to it. And you must have been listening to my class or something that I teach for you know, podcasting because that's exactly what I say. Well, it's the truth, man. It's the truth. I mean, it's just a, it's a hard gig. And that is why most of them fold and why most of them sound so, so terrible because people don't put in the work behind the scenes to make it sound good. Because, I mean, look, at the end of the day, you know, I want obviously Beer Nuts Productions produces comedy content and I want people to go there. And I want them to be entertained. But there is a standard that I want. I don't want people going there listening to some half-assed podcast that sounds just awful. And then they go, man, I'm not having nothing to do with this guy ever again. So, you know, it's really important that, you know, you, you make anything that you produce out of your your business, your brand is going to have to be as good as it can possibly be to keep people coming back for more. So I do take a lot of time and care on whatever Beer Nuts Productions produces to make sure it's the absolute best it possibly can be because that's, that's super important to make sure people keep coming back and enjoying your work. Nope, agree completely. Completely well, with, agree. With, with knowing how you feel about the podcast, I'm glad you are associated with us anyway. Exactly. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. In all sincerity, you fellas obviously do put a lot of time and hard work and effort into your shows. It's a very clean, very sharp uh, podcast that you lads produce. So there's nothing. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. So no, I, I think you lads do a wonderful job. And the fact you're up to well over 600 shows now is uh, is a credit to you. So. Uh, yeah, nothing but respect from my end, 100%. Well, we appreciate it, my friend. And we so appreciate you coming back all the time. And it's like, oh, he wants to come back on us? We must be doing something right, you know. It's, it's turned into a big loving, isn't it? We'll all have to <laughs> sit around the campfire and sing Kumbaya shortly. <laughs> well, exactly. I got the ween. Oh, never mind. So anyway, <laughs> so go one more time, Beer Nuts Productions, how can we find you? Yeah, yeah, so beernutsproductions.com all over the place. So, yeah, just uh, type in Beer Nuts Productions into your Google or whatever you're, you're using and we'll come up, website, social media, YouTube. You you look it up, we're on it. So uh, all your podcast providers as well. So, yeah, just Beer Nuts Productions is what you need to know. Awesome. All right, folks, let's take a quick break and we will be back to close up the show. Welcome to A Geek Girl's Take. I'm your host, Angela, and this week, this geek girl is talking about the Letterkenny Tour. The Letterkenny Tour started in 2020 and had to reschedule to 2022. 
It has kicked off, and most of the main cast are touring to different cities and performing skits, showing lots of behind-the-scenes sketches, and even some stand-up for members of the cast as well. I was lucky enough to get to go to their show in Durham and had an absolute blast. The only member who wasn't there that night was Stuart, which was sad since he is such a great character, but the show was nonetheless amazing. The cast catered their jokes to the area they were at as well. Lots of UNC and NC State jokes. And that was really, really cool to see that they paid that much attention to the areas they were at. K. Trevor Wilson and Mark Forward both got up and did stand-up sets. Both were hilarious, and I love their type of humor. K. Trevor Wilson's was incredibly funny to me since it was a Canadian's view on the many different types of Captain Crunch cereals that we have here in the U.S. His commentary on it was pretty freaking funny. This show did an amazing job of bringing the Letterkenny characters to life in front of an audience. And if you're a fan of the show and have the opportunity to go see them live, do it. It's really, really fun. And we'll leave you with some really fond memories of those characters after leaving that you may not get from just watching them on the screen. Well, thanks for listening to A Geek Girl's Take. What will I talk about next week? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. So that's going to wrap up another episode of the Earth Station One podcast. I want to thank everyone for joining us to talk about a little place called the Whipple Stop Cafe. Pretty cool place if you ever get to stop by there and you have to go back another 80 years to be able to experience it in its prime. But it still is a pretty cool place to visit. Mary, thank you so much for bringing this one up. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking about it with you. It was a blast. Anything you want to promote or shout out about... Well, you can just you can find my artwork at mariogle.com or on Etsy at eVision Arts. Very cool. And Darren, we hope you feel better and we missed you this time. Yeah. Not that, he's, not that he's listening or anything, but, you know, <laughs> I'm sure, you know, he's just like going, ah, missed that one. Oh, well, I'm going to go back and read my Legion of Superhero comic books instead. So awesome. But we missed you, dude. We did miss you. And of course, Mr. Mike Gordon, we made it through another one, my friend. We did, and as always, it's my pleasure. Anything you want to shout out about, sir? Well, we have to shout out. I think you'll you can feel free to jump on board with this one as well. But uh, we had a great time this past weekend at SC Comic Con. Uh, Robert and Michelle and everybody associated with SC Comic Con uh, who works there, the, all the volunteers. Uh, everybody there and everybody that we met at the table, guests, whatever, you know, were just delightful. Um, and uh, it's one of the reasons that we go to that show and we love going to that show. And we will continue to go to the show and, and love going to the show and help promote it because it's just a, it's a great place to go to. Are you saying we're going to a show? We just went to a show. I know. It was fun. <laughs> it was great. Um, as we were talking off the air and stuff. South Carolina Comic-Con has so much heart and has so much soul to it. It's an amazing show. Robert and Michelle and their crew at Borderlands puts on an amazing show for South Carolina Comic-Con. And it's a show that I look forward to going to every year. And the people we meet, the folks who are other vendors and artists, writers, and it's just, it's just great. And like we said, you know, earlier in the show opening, if we, if this is your first episode listening because you met us at the con and stuff, welcome. Hope you guys enjoyed 
it's a interesting show and we've got some great things ahead to talk about and hopefully you'll come back to listen to more as we like to say um very cool to see dan clink mark mccray uh got to hang out also of course with saw some a ton of friends who we don't really get to see all that often anymore because of covid it was just like opening the doors and it's like very cool and you know what we got to meet, of course, Keanu Reeves over the weekend, which is pretty cool. Oh, wait, that was Kelly Yates. Sorry. <laughs> easy it, easy to get it mixed up. Yeah, very, very close. But, but just to be close. safe, don't hurt the, either one of their dogs. No, don't. Nope, nope. Do not hurt the dogs, whatever you do. But it's a ton of fun. If you ever get a chance to go to South Carolina Comic Con, I don't think Robert's made the announcement yet for the dates for next year. He has. He has. Yeah. Do tell and, Mr. Gordon. And there is a South uh, SC Comic Con Junior happening in October as well. Ooh, so we might be back in Greenville sooner than we thought. Wow. That's very awesome. So we will definitely check that out and we will let you guys know, you know, if we're going to be there or if not. It should be t- good to see. But in, until then, of course, join us again next week. We are going to be going back to the movies. We are going to see Fantastic Beasts, The Secret of Dumbledore. That's right. More of the Harry Potter universe. It should be a lot of fun to see where this one goes. Um, be very curious to you know see what they're going to be going from here on, if this is going to wrap up. Because I know these films haven't been as big as the original Harry Potters, but I'll be very curious to see if they're going to continue with the whole series and such. So should be cool, at least. Until next week, of course, thank you guys for listening. It's always great to you know be with you guys, to meet people who've actually listened to the podcast and you know meet new listeners also at cons and such. And you know, folks, we do appreciate you. We really, really do. Thanks for listening to the Earth Station One podcast. As always, we're powered by NSC. You can find them at nsclivetv.com. Remember, you can also find Earth Station One wherever fine podcasts are found, including now tune in. Please subscribe and tell all your friends about us. Yes, we're not too proud to beg. On behalf of myself, Mike Faber, Mike Gordon, and of course, Mary Ogle, thanks again for listening. We'll see you here next time on the Earth Station One podcast. Stay safe, hug your loved ones, and folks, just be cool with everybody. It's such a weird place out there right now. And, you know, the weather's getting nicer, things are going, people are coming out of hibernation in most of the country, in most of the world. You know, if you can, enjoy it. It's there. And you know what? Hopefully soon we won't all be underwater. We'll see. Until then, peace. And we're done. You've been listening to the Air Station One podcast, a show by fans for fans. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to our show up on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are found. While you're up there, please rate us and remember to leave feedback. It would greatly be appreciated. And remember to tell your friends all about us while you're at it. Our Station One is available on most social media sites where you can join some really great topics or chats. Help support our show by shopping through our Amazon.com link or purchasing very cool ESO Network clothing and merchandise at our Public store. Links to both are found on the top of our ESO Network webpage. Become a patron of the ESO Network by backing us up on Patreon for as little as 25 cents a week. Go to patreon.com slash ESO Network to sign up. 
We want to hear from you. Please write us at EarthStation1 at ESONetwork.com or call us at 404-963-9057. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on the EarthStation1 podcast. Peace, and we're done. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.